Welcome to Software Security Chat Chat, episode 271 for the 14th of June, 2018. I'm Chester Wisniewski, back with my colleague, John Shire. Welcome back, John. Thanks, Chet. It's been a little while, but it's uh, really good to be back. Yeah, we've had a, a good mix of guests lately, so it's uh, it's great to have you back. Uh, I would have had you last week, but it turns out you were in an inconvenient time zone for me in, in London at InfoSec Europe and B-Sides London. Maybe you can give us a little summary of the events. I heard the B-Sides event was quite large and pretty successful, yeah? Yeah, it sure was. Uh, let, let me cover InfoSec first, because uh, we'll save the best for last. You know, InfoSec uh, is one of the larger security conferences in Europe. And, you know, unlike the other conferences that we tend to go to, things like RSA and Black Hat and things like Jitex in, in Dubai, it's a little bit smaller. So it's from that standpoint, it's it's nicer. You get a, a lot more meaningful conversations with people. Uh, and the, the stand that we had there was was phenomenal. It's really, uh, it was well uh, well laid out and we had a nice little theater area. I gave some talks as, as did some of our sales engineers and and Duck as well. So overall, it was a pretty good experience. And uh, happening at the same time was also B-Sides London, which um, I was fortunate enough to be a speaker at. But uh, I, I really enjoyed the event. I've been to a bunch of different B-Sides events uh, all over the world. And uh, this one really ranked up there as one of the, the, the well-organized uh, events that I've, I've been to. Uh, it was really well attended. There were a lot of engaging speakers. And uh, and, and overall, the, the event really got an A-plus from me. Well, that's great to hear. I mean, the, the uh, B-Sides in general, uh, for being a volunteer-run thing, uh, usually by passionate security people that are in a, a given community, it's amazing to me how well most of them are operated. I mean, it, it, uh, the quality of the speakers, the passion that people put into it, I think in a strange way, makes them better than the well-produced commercial events just because of that that energy and that passion that's driving it rather than it being someone's job. And uh, I, I, I know you've been to a few B-sides with me uh, at different places in the world. And you know I, I participate in helping run the one here in Vancouver, so I am a little biased. But uh, I really can't say enough uh, positive things to, that, to our audience that you know, if you're interested enough in security to be listening to this podcast, you need to be participating in your local B-sides uh, if you're not already. And if there isn't one, you should start one because these events are, are how we're going to grow and nurture the security community to be uh, bigger and stronger and smarter and really give us a chance at uh, learning what we need to do to get ahead of the bad guys. Uh, that's right. And and while, you know, there there is some corporate sponsorship that happens at these events, uh, it's really understated. All the, the sponsors that I talked to at this particular event, it wasn't about pushing product. It was just about engaging with the community, which is exactly what you want to see. And I like to call the, the crowded B-sides, you know, our people, the technologists, the people that have boots on the ground and are doing the actual work in the trenches. And, and these are the people that, uh, you know, at least for us, we want to be able to uh, capture their attention and, and just talk security with them. And so that was great for that and on the topic of starting b-sides you know i had a chance to run into uh, jack daniel one of the co-founders of, of b-sides and he said you know i think this year is either 82 or 85 b-sides worldwide you know and it's just growing phenomenally and it's just such a great thing to see so if we can keep it going he said if, you, if there's not one in your city right now start one it's it's a benefit to the community Full disclosure, Sophos is a sponsor of B-Sides London, and we are very grateful to uh, all of the Sophos employees who contributed their time to helping with B-Sides this year. 
moving along to the next story, it's going to be hard to not talk about the more interesting part of this story, but we need to talk about the less interesting part of the story. There, there was a story on Naked Security this week talking about the fact that Florida had stopped doing criminal background checks for concealed weapons licenses uh, or concealed carry licenses, as they're known in some other states, for apparently a, quite a long period of time. Now, I mean, obviously, there's a lot of political things that can be said about guns in America, and we don't really want to go down that path. But the more interesting part to me was the reason they stopped stopped doing these criminal background checks on issuing these concealed weapons licenses was the person who does the background checks forgot their password. I'm just in shock. I really don't even know what to say. Uh, the, the, uh, the, the woman that forgot the password apparently didn't think to reset it. I don't... I... <laughs> Yeah, or was there even a reset function? I don't know. This is a, a, a system run by the FBI, so I've never had access to it. But you know, this is one of those times where I wish there was that sticky note on the monitor with a password on it, because at least uh, you know the, the the very important job of making sure that uh, legal weapons aren't falling into the wrong hands was not being done for quite some time. And in, in, in a state that's had uh, unfortunately a couple uh, bad events in, in the last year or so, and you know when they actually got access to the system again, it turns out that of all the licenses that they had approved during that time without the check, uh, most of them had actually been revoked once they uh, they went through and, and, and did the backlog of checks. So I really, you know, it's important, right? And, and the, things like this, you wish that people, like you said, hey, password, use a password manager or something, you know, do, do something so they're not locked out of the system. Well, right. I mean, that that's why the stories here, uh, Yeah, looking at the numbers, the, the during that time, 365 applications have been approved. 291 have since been revoked, which is pretty disturbing um, that that percentage of them were being applied for by people with reasons for them to not have them. Uh, but, but without going down that political road, this does raise up uh, that bigger issue, which is if you're expecting your employees to do the right thing when the right thing is harder to do than it should be and telling them not to write passwords down on sticky notes and giving them all this advice, uh, you really got to enable them to do the right thing by making it easy to do the right thing, right? Having that password manager so that it's not just the one woman who knows the password to the national crime database so that when she's sick or on leave or whatever else, somebody else can step in and do that, making sure that that password is secure and securely stored, as you said, in, in a password manager, even if it is written on a sticky note, but it's stored in a vault somewhere and it's you know available to management, there, there needs to be uh, you know redundancy in your processes around these things. And if you leave it up to the end user who doesn't know any better way, they're not only going to choose a guessable password, they're also going to do something like this and maybe forget it entirely and just not do half their job. And, and I, 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 I can't um, stress uh, too much how important it is to uh, partner with your staff and make it easy to do the right thing. Yeah, exactly. There's really not much to say about this beyond, you know, enable your workforce to help you do security right. And, and, and make sure they know you're there for them. If they don't know what to do, you want them to be comfortable enough to come to you and go, look, we're supposed to use this 24 character password, but how the heck am I going to remember that? Can you help me? Um, and, 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 you know, come up with processes to work through that. So I, my favorite article of the week on Naked Security, I think without any doubt, is, is a, an article on a vulnerable IoT device, which of course doesn't sound like a particularly rare article on Naked Security, considering the uh, historical insecurity of, of IoT devices. But this one's a little different. 
different. Duck put a lot of effort into writing up this uh, insecure camera vulnerability from Foscam, but it wasn't really so much about the, the specific devices that are vulnerable. Although if you do have Foscam security cameras, you ought to go and patch them because there is a fix available for some rather concerning uh, vulnerabilities in those cameras. But what's interesting is Duck really explained uh, in depth how you chain together a series of uh, coding errors or carelessness in, in software development that largely might be invisible uh, to the user of a product, but in the end can lead to complete compromise. And I, I love how uh, simple and succinctly he's put it. And I, I really wanted to draw attention to it because I think people should take a look at this to give you an idea how these things work. Yeah, it's also worth mentioning that this is the these bugs were responsibly disclosed. So for the, the users out there who have these devices in their networks, you know, there, there is a patch available, as you said. Uh, and that's that's a win for the security company. That's a win for the consumers that are, are buying these products. And yeah, as far as the, the chaining of exploits go, I, I think this is a really succinct example of how maybe, you know, one exploit, while it may not get you all the keys to the kingdom, by taking a few of them and putting them together, you can actually do quite a lot of damage. And so it, it's worth noting and, and realizing that, hey, if, if I've got this one you know, buffer overflow exploit is, is one of the examples here in this uh, this particular uh, set of vulnerabilities. Uh, you know that is enabling some other actions on the system that uh, shouldn't be allowed to happen. And so you know just like we saw with I, I believe it was Point to Own last year where they had to chain eleven vulnerabilities. I mean th that speaks to the security work that we're doing as an industry to secure both hardware and software. But people are taking the time to put these things together and and, and see if they can get even deeper and further into the system. So uh, yeah, great write-up and and you know if you want a little bit more information there's a link to the actual uh, technical write-up from the people who discovered this as well in the article yeah if you're someone who writes code I, I can't encourage you enough to to pay close attention to these types of things because this is a great example of the sum being greater than the parts right like the three vulnerabilities that were disclosed uh, in and of themselves are somewhat bad but not devastating but when you put the three together it's not just additive of the three, it's actually much more than that. And that's something I think a lot of software developers don't often understand when we report vulnerabilities as security teams. They go, well, this is an information disclosure vulnerability, but this information that's being disclosed is kind of public. It, it's not really that important. Well, yeah, it, it is okay that, you know, this public thing maybe be disclosed, but it turns out if you know that and you combine it with this other thing and then you add this third thing, you end up with something that's much, much more powerful. And that's, it's hard to always imagine the creativity of your attackers. And so anytime you have a, a, a lapse in, in process on the security side, it's worth addressing it just so it can't later be chained together with these other ones. And, and uh, Duck's write-up is uh, just so easy to understand. Uh, I just wanted to draw some attention to it because I think it's pretty, uh, pretty brilliant, Duck. And I think it's also worth pointing out that there's some security basics lessons that can be um, taken from this, which the, one of the, the vulnerabilities was, was a lack of privilege separation. Everything was running under root, right? And that's just, just bad coding and, and bad practice. We've known this for years. So just little things like that when you're when you're developing products, you know, make sure you're getting the security basics right and, and not doing silly things like this. Now, a, f a favorite topic of yours, I know, is cryptojacking. So I had to bring it up because I think uh, we... we <laughs> 
we should talk about it a little bit because there's so much hype going on and, and a lot of the headlines in particular in media stories are somewhat misleading. I keep seeing uh, tweets going by in my Twitter feed saying things like $11.9 million stolen through crypto mining attacks. And for most people that translates to these websites that have been compromised with these little JavaScript miners like the um, the Drupal get into vulnerability that uh, was being exploited by some criminals to compromise CMSs into running the these uh, JavaScript crypto mining things. And I thought maybe you could set the record a little more straight for us on what your viewpoint is, because I know you've been looking at this most of 2018. So you've got a good six months of research into this now. What do you think? What we first need to do really is is we need to sort of define some of the ways that cryptojacking is is occurring on systems. So one of the ways you can cryptojack is is very simply to steal, let's say, bitcoins, right? So we we saw or we've seen countless examples now it seems of of exchanges getting breached and the private keys getting stolen, then just the bitcoins going away into the crooks' pockets, right? And that that's a, an example of cryptojacking. Uh, but what we're seeing these days and, and what is in the media is uh, specifically around the crypto mining of usually Monero. And there's two flavors of that, right? There's the browser-based crypto miners that rely on a usually JavaScript in, in uh, that's on a compromised site or on a legitimate site. Some some websites are experimenting with using these as a way to uh, subsidize themselves in, in lieu of ads. And then there's the server-side or installed malware variant where uh, the actual payload is, is sitting on a server. And, and the difference there is when you're on a website, the crypto miner is only running while you're on that site while the tab while the tab is open uh, so that could be that your cpu is running let's say at 100 percent for five minutes whereas i think the more insidious ones are the server side ones and i think this is where the crooks are making their money and it is with these these installed variants where you can run at let's say five or ten percent cpu 100 percent of the time and if you get on a substantially large enough footprint then you can stand to make maybe quite a bit of money and i think that's that's where we're seeing these stories uh, come from with uh, the you know the multi-million dollar pay payouts yeah, I have a theory that this is all just a, a, a brilliant uh, scheme by Microsoft, Amazon, and Google to uh, uh, <laughs> ramp up the, the fees for their their cloud services as all these Linux servers around the internet that are unpatched continually get infected with these crypto mining things and generate massive fees in uh, in Amazon EC2 and Azure for the the, the poor websites. That, so I, I mean, actually, that I mean, I'm joking mostly, but that is a, a, a pro tip right there. If you notice your AWS bill go from $100 a month to $300 a month, it's not that you're incredibly popular. You might be incredibly popular, but it's more likely you got a crypto miner installed on your web server. Yeah. We chatted a little bit before the podcast around specifically around the browser-based stuff. And, you know, it's it's one of these things that as far as the choosing the lesser of two evils, I, I think the browser-based stuff is largely getting in the way as far as the media hype cycle is concerned of the very real problem that we were just talking about, these Linux servers getting compromised and, and hosting this uh, this installed malware. Um, after all, you know, the, the browser tab that's running the JavaScript, if you simply just close that tab, the problem largely goes away. Yes, you know, there's wear and on your CPU, there's wear and tear on your uh, memory, and and there's a lot of power consumption. Your battery drains really quickly. But you know they're not stealing your data. They're not getting access to private areas of of your disk. They shouldn't if they're properly contained in the sandbox, a browser sandbox. Um, so you know if it's the choice between let's say ransomware and a browser crypto miner, I think I know which one I'm choosing. 
Sure. Yeah. I mean, I was kind of playing devil's advocate and saying it's just it's always wrong to steal. I don't care if you're stealing through my web browser or anything else. It's just agitating. absolutely. Absolutely. But um, you're right. And, and the problem here, uh, you know, you mentioned uh, in a previous conversation, the sort of long tail nature of those installed ones as well. It's not just that it's running for more than the four minutes you're on a website. It's that it's running 24 seven for a day, a month, a week five years, who knows? And uh, that's been a long-term problem with Linux compromises is that people don't protect their Linux instances. They don't run antivirus on them. Uh, a lot of this containerization movement has led to even more security vulnerabilities that allow for holes for these things to get inserted into systems. And once they're there because you're not monitoring them for compromise or you're not monitoring them for malware anyway, you're pretty much infected until you rebuild that instance, uh, whether that be a virtual machine instance, whether it be a Docker container, whether it be whatever it might be. And uh, our, our hygiene on non-Windows platforms is terrible, and we need to get a lot better at it, uh, whether that's running antivirus, whether that's monitoring and hardening. We're just terrible at this, and and I think that's allowing the criminals to, to, to start robbing us blind in new and creative ways. If you'll permit an analogy so that uh, you know we can help some of our listeners understand this a little bit better of, of why it can be such a problem aside from the fact that people are making you know money off of your your resources it's a lot like if you're you know, a taxi driver and, and you come home at night and park your taxi in the, in the driveway and then i come along and i take your taxi while you're sleeping drive it around you know pick up some fares, make some money, and then return the car in the morning. So it's right where you left it, and uh, it's, it's ready to go for you. But, you know, there's been some wear and tear on the car. I've made money off of your resources. I didn't pay insurance. I'm not paying the lease on that uh, on the taxi cab or, or for the medallion. And, you know, you're, you're left holding a depreciated asset at the end of the day. So that, that's really, you know, the, the side effect of a lot of these crypto miners is, is they're causing a lot of this sort of unintended consequence of, of assets depreciating much quicker than they should. Yeah, the fuel tank's empty and there's a coffee stain. Lastly, business email compromise, which might be a new term for some people, uh, briefly explain that's these emails that are often sent to people in the finance department at your company asking for the account number for a wire transfer to be changed uh, to, to be updated. And of course, instead of sending uh, the wire transfer to pay for the trash collection to the trash company, uh, it now goes to uh, criminals somewhere, or in this case, in the United States and Nigeria. But the FBI announced they arrested 74 people in a giant take down a business email compromise, which is uh, incredibly encouraging to hear from my perspective. Well, it's disappointing that 74 people were involved, but it's encouraging that we were able to uh, crack this. Operate, it, was, it was called uh, Operation Wirewire, and uh, 42 of those people were arrested in the United States, 29 in Nigeria, and one each in Canada, Mauritius, and Poland. This might be also uh, good news for people uh, in Russia and China to understand that it's not always Russia and China that's behind every scam on the internet. In this case, uh, the U.S. leads the way with uh, their partners in Nigeria, Canada, Mauritius, and Poland. So um, not all bad things on the internet are Eastern European. However, uh, I just wanted to, to bring it up because uh, it's really important to raise awareness about the non-technical measures sometimes that can be put in place to help protect against these types of scams. It's one of these things that we, we think about prevention, right? Can we stop the emails from coming in? Can we stop our passwords from being stolen? And those things are all important, but we can also look at processes that are followed outside of technology, right? 
Absolutely. I like these good news stories that we often do at the end of the podcast because it, it does show that the amount of work and effort that's being put into trying to stop these criminals, it does tend to pay off from time to time. And, uh, you know, a lot of people, you know, we, we very often tend to celebrate failures in cybersecurity, but I think uh, it's worth celebrating the the wins as well. And uh, this is just one such example. And, you know, when it comes to business email compromise or really any other internet crime, it, it helps to be able to report that. And, and there are agencies now that you can report that to. So the US, for example, is, you know, they have the IC3, which you can report cybersecurity incidents to. And I'm not suggesting that everybody rush out with every, you know, if you get 100 incidents a month, don't call them 100 times, but maybe send them a digest email saying, hey, these are all the things we spotted on our network if you're doing threat hunting or if if you're, you know, if you're keeping a track of, of all the different uh, types of threats that are hitting your network uh, and just give them a heads up because then it, it helps them understand the scope of the problem and understanding the scope of the problem leads to leads to more funding sometimes and more funding just leads to more arrests. Yeah. And, and these, you know, international cooperation is incredibly important, but that means that they need to really understand that scale of the problem. Like you're saying, in this case, they were able to recover $16.4 million from the crooks as well. So that's all the way around really good news. But, you know, you can look at uh, not just uh, bolstering your phishing detection and other things. You can also look at, you know, what is the process for changing account numbers for wire transfers? If you know that this is what's going on, you can say that uh, you must always call, uh, call the person back and verify by telephone before making that change or or, you know, but you can put other processes in place that can help with these things as well. And it's really important to raise awareness that these are hitting all kinds of businesses all around the world. So make sure your staff are prepared and educated about the problems so that they are, are uh, less likely to uh, have you be a victim. And then you won't need to contact the FBI, the RCMP or any other policing agency. And on that note, I'll conclude Sofa Security Chat Chat 271. As always, for the latest security news, visit nakedsecurity.sophos.com. If you'd like some free protection for your home computers, you can go to home.sophos.com. All of our podcasts are available on iTunes, on Google, on all the other great podcast uh, products and platforms out there. And until next time, stay secure.